Uh, my wife and kids were in a car accident this week on Friday, and everybody was fine. Uh, but what had happened was a 17-year-old boy was driving a great big Hummer, and he, he pulled out and um, slammed right into the bumper, the front bumper of my wife's car, and took it off. And so she called me here uh, at work, and I, I drove over. It wasn't, wasn't too far away. And as I was driving, she was on the phone with me, and, um, and she said that the guy who hit her was leaving. And I said, well, wait a minute, the police haven't come, have they? And, and um, she said, no, but he said that he had someplace to be and he just couldn't stick around. And, and I could hear his voice in the background and it, it was almost like he was just sort of shrugging his shoulder, shoulders and the, the whole event was uh, no big deal to him. And, and basically what you would say is that he was someone who was just indifferent, right? Now... There is uh, so much indifference around us in the world, isn't there? I mean, you turn on the news, you see it. You look at the culture as a whole, you see it. We look at many of our relationships with family members or other employees or schoolmates, and we see it. And if we're honest with ourselves, uh, we see it perhaps most clearly in ourselves or if we're even more honest with ourselves, uh, sometimes we don't see it in ourselves at all. Uh, sometimes we can be blinded to and blinded by our own indifference. And this was certainly the case for the church that we're going to look at this morning. Uh, this is the only church out of all seven that we have looked at that Jesus had absolutely nothing good to say about. This is a church uh, filled with Christians who Jesus says are, are lukewarm. And so as we conclude our series this week, uh, we are going to look at Jesus' final letter to the churches, a letter to the church in the city of Laodicea. Now, uh, Laodicea, to give you a little bit of a background about the place, it was a very prosperous city in its day. Uh, it was a hub of business and travel, communication, trade, and medicine. And if you were looking for a place at that time to start all over again, it might just be the perfect place for you to relocate your family and begin a new life. It was the ideal city in most ways in its time, but it had one problem, bad water. Uh, the river that flowed around, along the bank of the city in Laodicea was muddy and it was dirty and it was undrinkable. But these, you have to understand, were Laodiceans, okay? These were special people and they would not let that stop them. And so as the city was being built, they investigated their options and they discovered that there were cool and refreshing springs that were nearby in the south in a city of Colossae, which is the same city that Paul wrote the book of Colossians to. Or another option, about six miles away, there was a city to the north in a place called Heropolis, and, and that place had some hot springs filled with fresh water as well. And so they decided to go to the north, and the city officials built a great aqueduct to transfer the water from the city of Heropolis to Laodicea. And as the water flowed down the aqueduct, the hot water became cooler and cooler, and when it arrived in the city, it was lukewarm. 
And so what you have here is a city with lukewarm water in between a city with hot water and a city with cold water. And so, as goes the city of Laodicea, we will find out, so goes the church. And we are told that the Christians in this church also are neither hot or cold. And so Jesus says to them, would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, when uh, Jesus says to these people that he wishes that they were either hot or cold, sometimes uh, this can be very misunderstood, and it's important not to misunderstand it. Uh, Sometimes it's been taught or preached that what this means is that a lukewarm faith is so offensive to God that he would rather a person be totally cold and distant and far from him than being just wishy-washy, in the middle, or lukewarm. Uh, But this is not what it means at all. God would never want a person to be cold and distant and far away from him. God uh, longs for each person to come to him, and and so the, the meaning of this little section of the passage is different. What it means is that hot water and cold water both have value, but lukewarm water doesn't. Uh, I don't think that there's much that's better in life than than on a cold morning sitting down with a hot cup of coffee. Anybody with me on that? There might be one thing better, and that is coming in from a hot summer day after you've mowed the lawn and drinking a cold, uh, refreshing glass of water. But on a really hot day or on a really cold day, Who wants to drink something that's just room temperature, right? Lukewarm water is worthless. It neither warms a person up or refreshes them when they're hot. It has no value. And so just like with a lukewarm cup of coffee or a lukewarm soda, if you taste it, you spit it back out into the mug, you pour it in the sink, and you get something that is either hot or cold. And Jesus says, I I do the same to this church. I want you to really understand, this is not a loss of salvation. There is no such thing. This is God saying, uh, not, I'm done with you individual, I spit you out of my mouth. This is God saying corporately to this church, your church is useless, it's broken, it's worthless, it's of no value, and so... We spit something valueless together uh, out of his mouth. Now, here's the thing about this church. This is so interesting and so important. They were totally blind to this, okay? They were completely oblivious to how Jesus felt about them. In fact, if you notice, God's evaluation of them in this passage is the exact opposite as their evaluation of themselves. It says, Jesus says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked, These people are absolutely oblivious and completely untroubled by their room temperature faith. And so what we're going to see here is that God is going to seek to stir them up out of this slumber of indifference that seems to be over the atmosphere in their church. And he does it by giving them counsel 
in imploring them to do three things. And it's those three things that we're going to spend our time uh, thinking about here together. And so if you look with me in verse 18, he lists the three. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And what he's telling them here is that they've been investing in the wrong currency. Now, one thing about the city of Laodicea is that it was a very wealthy city, and it had a great uh, banking industry. In fact, there were many famous philosophers and politicians of the day who kept their finances in the bank of the city. And they were so wealthy and prosperous, in fact, that 35 years before this passage had been written, there was a great earthquake that devastated the city. And so the the empire came to the officials in Laodicea and said, would you like to help? We'd like to give some money towards rebuilding. But their response was, no, 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 no. We can do this all on our own. We've got everything that we need contained within ourselves here. We don't need you. And in the same way, the Christians of this church were echoing that attitude towards God. I mean, they were boasting about their wealth and their success and their ease of life. They felt totally confident and competent that they could make their lives work on their own. And and God replies, you've got it all wrong. He says, you think that you're rich, but you are actually poor because he's, he's going to say here, true riches are found only in one place, in me. Have you ever heard a a news story that goes something like this? I I couldn't think of one in particular, but I've heard this one five or six times in in different uh, ways. Uh, Imagine uh, like there's an older uh, man who lives in incredible poverty, and he's just eking out a living, uh, collecting bottles at the side of the road and and just doing various odd jobs and things like that. And he lives in a home that's very, very small, and it's falling apart, and the man's clothes are warm, worn, and he looks like he's uh, malnourished, and he has no relationships, it doesn't seem, no family, no friends. His neighbors don't know him at all, and the man dies, and, and nobody knows about it until maybe the mailman comes to deliver something to his house, and the mailman discovers that this man has actually passed away, and eventually someone comes to clean up the house and and take care of things. And when that person comes to do that, they notice an old shoebox in the closet, and they pull down the shoebox, and they open it up, and what they find is hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash and in coins and in gold. You ever heard a story like that? And the man had it sitting right there all along. It was his, but he never spent it. The the people in the church of Laodicea were like that. They had relationship with God, but they were not moved in any real way by its value. And so what they were was positionally rich, but they were experientially poor. And God says to them, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich. And what Jesus is saying here is this, is that if you really want to be rich, then your treasure must not be found 
in something that you have or something that you can do, but it must be found in someone that you know, and that is God himself. For the true treasure of life is relationship. It is fellowship. It is friendship with Jesus himself. Now, it can be uh, so hard for us sometimes to uh, see the everyday value of our faith, can it? I mean, life is so busy, so stressful. Many of us, some, some of you right now, even in this room, are exhausted. Right? There, there are people who did not come here this morning because they literally felt like they could not drag themselves out of bed at 11.15. They're working long hours, maybe uh, midnights, and their work is stressful and hard. Uh, we, in general, as a culture, are not getting enough sleep. We're always checking our email. We're always thinking about work. We're always fighting the, the traffic of life, dealing with kids and chores and activities and responsibilities. We juggle tasks all day long. Don't you feel that someplace? It's trying to accomplish things, produce things, and we feel as we do it so drained. Even our entertainment now is, is draining. Hardly anybody I know just goes fishing anymore, right? But we collect a pile of TV shows on our DVR, and, and we have Facebook feeds with hundreds of friends, and, and keeping up with these things is like dealing with a pile of unread magazines, right? Oh, yeah. i got to watch that. Oh, man. Ask just about anyone how they're doing at any given time, and I, I nearly guarantee you, you get one of two answers. Either they will tell you that they are busy, or they will tell you that they are tired. And many people walk around feeling like the account that they have with energy or life within them is just one large withdrawal away from being bankrupt. And our temptation today is the same temptation that the Laodiceans have. It is the temptation to believe that what we need is more of what we already have or something that we can find apart from God, something horizontal, not vertical. We, we just need a little more rest. Man, if I could just get a day off. Or if I could just get a, a night out with my spouse or some of my friends, or if I could just sit down with a good novel and get away, if, if retirement would just finally come, if, if I had more time to exercise, if I had more money, if the kids would just get a little older and move through this stage because it's so tiring and I'm not getting any sleep. Now, all of these things have great value. They're all good things, but none of these things, even the combination of them all, are valuable enough to truly meet our needs. Because the truth is that our lives are beyond our ability to manage and control. If we haven't gotten our lives together by now, there's a very good chance that we never will. And so what we need is something better and richer and of more value than what we find around us. 
Now, the picture that the Bible paints of fellowship with God is absolutely compelling. Uh, read through your Bible sometime and, and just look for, for, for people's experience of, of walking with God, of friendship with God, of enjoying his presence. Uh, Jesus, for instance, we're told, he woke up in the very early morning before dawn and, and he snuck out to be in the wilderness where nobody was. It was probably the only time during his day that he experienced that. And, and the Bible says that he went there just to be with his father. And this was not a responsibility that he felt as the son of God, but this was for him an escape from all of his responsibilities. When David in the Psalms said that one day in God's courts is better than a thousand years anywhere else, when you read that Psalm, you get the sense that David really meant it. And then he had tasted something in his relationship, in his fellowship with God that was rich and deep and life-giving and good, and he longed for more of it. He craved it, and he really meant it. I would rather have one day close to you, walking with you, than a thousand years anywhere else. He meant that. When Paul writes in the book of Colossians, may you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience and joy. Paul believes that that is actually possible. Those were not just words to him. That was his true experience. And I want to know that more in my life. I want to taste that more. I want to enjoy that more. And I hope that you do too. Enjoying this kind of fellowship with the Lord is, is, it requires more than, than just time spent with him in some sort of perfunctory way. But what it requires is something that we are so incredibly uncomfortable with, and that is retreating from the world. It is doing what Jesus did, escaping into the wilderness and, and this is what is so hard about it. But this is also what's so valuable about it. We as people are always chasing something. But the Bible says, be still and know that I'm God. And this is such a wonderful invitation, one that we need so badly into rest. Now, one of the best things that we can do is to stop seeing time spent with God as, as just being a, another responsibility or a Christian duty or a discipline, but to learn how to savor it, how to enjoy it, to delight in it, to anticipate it, to see it as your refuge from life around you, to bring your mind to it and your heart to it. And, and this definitely does not happen overnight. This is something that we grow in as we invest in it. But it begins with something so important, and that is with recognizing its value. Recognizing the value of fellowship with God. And so when we carve out that time and, and we read the, the words of the living God, the things that he wants to 
speak into your life. And as we consider them and reflect on them and meditate and apply them, when we take a quiet walk in the neighborhood and and we just pour out to God our adoration towards him or our fears that we have in life or the distance that we feel from him or our gratitude or our requests, what what we're really doing is, is we're escaping. We're taking a break from the pressures and the tensions and the responsibilities of life in a fallen world. And we stand before God in stillness and we are reminded that he is God. And he has made every galaxy and he has made every blade of grass and he has made us and he he wants to be with us. And I'm not talking about trying to have a spiritual high every day. I'm not talking about, uh, you know, warm fuzzies from Jesus. What, What I am talking about is a peace and a confidence that is rooted in the truth of the things that God has said are true. It's learning and believing his thoughts and resting in them. It's letting them trickle down from our heads into our hearts and recognizing that life really is beyond us. But that's okay because it is not beyond God. He can do the things I am incapable of. And we remember his love and his character and that he's with us and that he's for us and that everything he has said that he has finished through the cross is done. I think maybe one of the kindest things Jesus ever says, he says to all of us, Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we invest in these things, when we invest even simply our time, what we're doing is we are buying gold. We're buying refined gold, the best gold. We are adding something to our lives that we cannot find any place else. And and God says, take it from me. Enjoy it. Spend it. Spend it on your family. Spend it on your friends. Spend it on your coworkers. Enjoy it and savor it within your own heart and mind. Knowing and enjoying Christ is of ultimate worth. So Jesus says to them, buy it. He says, take it and spend it. It's yours. Don't put it away in a shoebox and hide it in a closet. The second thing that he says to them is quite different but also similar. He says, I counsel you to buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Okay? Again, what's so interesting about this text is that, that the, the, the city itself sort of matches the condition of the Christians within the city. And so Laodicea was uh, very famous for a certain style of dress uh, they had a great textile industry, and in particular, they used to make clothing there from this special glossy black wool, 
and nobody knows if it was actual black wool that, that was natural or if they, they dyed it to make it black. But the people were so proud of these, um, these clothes that they would wear, and they would wear them around with great pride. And so the analogy that God is making is he says, you, you people in this church, you've adopted not just the dress of the people, but also their values and behaviors too. And you're really no different than they are, and, and you flaunt it just like they flaunt these particular types of clothing. And, and he says, but you actually are naked and pitiable and wretched. And these are horrible words. I, uh, I remember a man um, from our church here. He told me a story about three years ago in the lobby. And uh, I rem- I've remembered it ever since, and I think about it every so often. And I, I don't remember much. I mean, tell me something 15, years, 15 minutes later, I've generally forgotten it. But this story really stuck with me. Um, he was telling me that uh, during his college years, he really got involved in uh, the party uh, lifestyle. And uh, when he left college, he left with a degree, but also uh, with uh, um, um, he was addicted to alcohol at that time. And I don't know how long went by after that, but eventually he got help, and God had, had freed him um, from this. And so he had been sober for two or three years, and he was traveling, um, and he was in Las Vegas uh, on business or something like that. And uh, as he was at a hotel or something, a, a woman who was a waitress came up to him, and, and she said, here you go. And she handed him an alcoholic drink, and, and he said, he said I, I didn't order that. And she said, well, that's okay. She said, uh, it's free. And he said that he thought to himself in that moment, he, he thought, you know what? If I accept this free drink, I might as well hand this woman my marriage certificate, my children, my home, my car, and everything that is in my bank account, all of my savings. And he thought, this will be the most expensive free drink I have ever had in my entire life because it will cost me everything. And that was about 30 years ago, and he's been sober to this day. The reason that I remembered this story is because it it amazed me that he was able to have uh, such a moment of clarity in his life, right? In that one little moment, he saw everything. He saw his past and the damage that alcohol had had caused him. He saw the present, the importance of this decision, and he realized what his future would look like if he just took that drink. It was so crystal clear to him at that time, and I believe that is so rare. It is so uncommon for us to see the, the ugliness of sin for what it really is and how our greed, anger, our lust, our jealousy, our laziness, our bitterness, our arrogance, our deceitfulness, our hard-heartedness, our rebellion, our idolatry, how all of those things reverberate through our lives with such a destructive power. Peter had, I think, one of the most sobering descriptions of of sin in the Bible. 
he says that, that sin is something that wages war against our souls. This is an incredible statement. Think about what this means. Sin wages war against our soul. What kind of damage does that cause? A war is something that is brutal and bloody and horrible. It involves people stabbing each other with swords and with spears and with arrows. But but our souls are so tender. And this is exactly the idea that Jesus has here when he calls them the specific word uh, wretched. Uh, Being wretched refers to a person who has been in a war and they have absolutely lost it and they are left with nothing. They are ravaged. They're in utter ruin. And what what, what this means is, is that sin is so grave and serious that if we open up the door to it, it will tear us apart. And doesn't it? I mean, is there anyone in this room who cannot give example after example after example of something in your life that was ruined because of your sin? Who here is not a casualty of that war? Well, many uh, Christians live like prisoners of war to sin, at least in certain areas of their life. They, they sit in a cell of guilt and of shame and of, of isolation. They feel, oh, I'm the only one, of self-loathing and of uh, defeat. But, but here, uh, God, in his goodness, he, he points the way out of that cell, right? God never leaves people just wallowing in their sin. And, and the way he points out here is repentance. We'll, we'll read that little phrase in just a moment. But, but the irony of the whole thing is that for Christians, that cell that we find ourselves in sometimes, and for short periods of time, sometimes for long periods of time, it, it is never actually locked. Uh, we think it is. We, we feel like it is. But, but Christ has defeated and died for our sins, right? Christ has unlocked the door of that cell for us. He has secured our release. And and what Jesus points to here is repentance. And and repentance is basically walking through the door that Christ has already opened. It's doing what the Apostle Paul says. He says, renouncing disgraceful, underhanded ways. Uh, Repentance is saying, I I don't want to live in the cell anymore. I want to live under the sun. I want to live in the air, under the clouds, with the trees. And so I changed my mind. I abandoned those actions and attitudes. I accept the forgiveness that Christ purchased for me with his blood. And, and we walk out of that prison cell naked, as he describes here, pitiable and wretched. And guess who is there to receive us with open arms and grace in his eyes, right? And it is those same arms that secured for us our salvation, that now secure for us fellowship. Remember, the Bible says that Christ is our good shepherd, that he is our rock and our refuge and our healer and our redemption. And Jesus 
says that he wants to clothe us in white robes so that the shame of our nakedness may not be seen. But how rare it is that these things are clear to us. Indifference is such a terrible poison, in part because it works so covertly and so seductively. It camouflages the value of relationship with God. It's like a venomous neurotoxin that slowly spreads throughout our system and it shuts down everything that it touches. And Christians, bit by bit, become blind and detached and apathetic and unconcerned about the things and the people and the values that mattered so much to them at one time. We become spiritually tranquilized. We're neither hot nor cold, but we are just lukewarm. And that may be you this morning. If that is you, God gives you incredible hope right here in this passage. Um, As I said, the the city of Laodicea was known also for its medicine. And uh, in particular, there was a salve that they manufactured there in the city that was called uh, Phrygian powder. And what it was used for is it was used to cure eye defects. So people who had eye problems would come to this city and they would purchase this salve. And Jesus says here to this church, he says, buy from me salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. This is an incredible invitation to lukewarm people. What he's saying is this, is that lukewarm Christians require new sight, new perspective, new eyes. See, the the trouble with lukewarm people is that they tend to be very lukewarm towards their lukewarmness, right? Our indifference causes us to be indifferent to our very indifference. So how can we possibly change within ourselves? Indifference is so serious that it demands an outside influence. If you are trying to make yourself not be indifferent anymore on your own, good luck with that. Because indifference paralyzes. It it, it, uh, tranquilizes. But you know what this is here? This is a kind of invitation that God is giving to a supernatural enlightening from God to indifferent people. You remember the story uh, in the in the Gospels of, of Jesus and the blind man. Jesus is walking down the road and, and he sees this man who was blind and he just asks him a question. He says, what do you want me to do for you? You remember what the man says? He says, I want to see again. And if you are an indifferent person today, if you're a lukewarm person, I encourage you 
to make that very same cry of that blind man your cry to God. That God would anoint your eyes so that you might long for more than just a lukewarm faith. And that you would make it the cry of your heart every day, Jesus, I want to see again. I want to see. And keep asking him and asking him and asking him whether you feel like it or not until he does. That you would come to God through his word, through prayer the best you can, through song, through counsel of other people, believing that God makes blind people see and that he can heal even the most stubborn indifference. And Jesus here says something that's amazing. When you consider how pitiful these people are, and this is, this is maybe the height of the entire passage. It's what Brandon read for us this morning. Look at verse 19. Those whom I love, right? <laughs> these people are so unlovable that God said, you are those whom I still love. Even in all of your lukewarmness, even in all of your indifference, I am not indifferent towards you. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be jealous, zealous, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Now, this is another verse in this passage that's sometimes misunderstood. This is not an invitation for unbelievers to put their faith in Christ. Sometimes it's used that way. This is actually an invitation for believers to enjoy fellowship with God. That's what dining together means. It means enjoying the the sweet sense of friendship with God. You know, what's interesting about it is that um, Jesus, in this passage here, he doesn't barge his way into our lives, does he? He doesn't say, I'm going to break down the door or I'm going to walk through the door. He will never force his way into your life. But you know what's also true? He doesn't walk away either. He doesn't say, I'm only going to knock for so long and then if you don't answer it, I'm gone. He says, I stand at the door and knock and if anyone hears my voice, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And this morning, you may feel so lukewarm. You may feel unlovable, unworthy, unfit to open up that door. But God invites you to buy from him gold that has been refined by fire and garments to clothe your shame, no matter how shameful you might feel or be, and a salve to anoint your eyes. Please do not mistake this passage. The living God invites you to dine with him today. Let's pray.
Father, we are uh, struck to the heart at times by the power of your honesty in showing us what our true condition sometimes and often is. And we are cut to the heart by the power of your grace and goodness and that your love has no strings attached. Your love is so unconditional that we can hardly fathom it and that you would offer these things to indifferent and lukewarm people is certainly a sign that you must be God and you must be you. Forgive our indifferent hearts. Wake us up, we pray, so that we might see the glory and wonder of who you are and what you've done and that we might enjoy God with us. Help us to long to be still and just to know that you are God. Teach us what that means. We thank you that there is no lukewarm that is too lukewarm for you. We thank you that there is no person here who you have stopped calling. We pray that you would give each of us the grace to let you in, whatever that looks like for each of us. We ask these things not in our power, but in yours, in the power of your Son, Jesus. Amen.